Hey, Tim. Hey, Tammy. I am so excited about this upcoming episode with the amazing Carmine Gallo. I know. Can you believe that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk with him for a good hour and a half? Uh, it's He's like my personal superhero in a one-on-one discussion. It was amazing. So I want to just give a little bit of background on him, and then we can totally geek out about the episode because I'm so excited about it. Carmine Gallo is the author of nine books on communication. He's a former TV broadcaster in California. He has coached and trained so many executives in the Fortune 500. In my estimation, and I'm sure in yours as well, he is the guru of communications. And anybody who knows anything about communications knows who Carmine Gallo is. So true. He is the epitome of communication skills. He comes from such a deep background of knowledge. We could have gone on for hours and hopefully we'll have him back again and continue our discussion where we left off. But yeah, I'm a big nerd about the whole thing. Admittedly, uh, every word and then you become very focused on how you're communicating with Carmine Gallo, let alone the discussion. Oh my God. I totally was self-conscious during the entire conversation. And it's funny because you and I have been talking about writing a lot recently, which of course is another form of communication and our anxiety about how well we write and, you know, watching every word that we write on a, on an email or in any kind of, in any kind of communication. And I felt that way when I was speaking with him because I was so self-conscious about the words I was saying and how I was saying it. And obviously, we spend a lot of time thinking about this, but it was a heightened state when you're talking to someone like him that is so well-versed and, as you put it, really locked down. Like, he's got his skills so mastered. No kidding. Talk about execution. We marvel all the time at people who can communicate well, and we talk about ideas with folks and how they do it differently and their struggles. Admittedly, I didn't see a struggle from him. I was hard-pressed to find a challenge for him in the whole interaction. And it just highlighted all the other parts where I felt like I was not going to say it right or express it the same way. He just was amazing to talk to, but yet he, he makes you feel very comfortable. You know, he's got such a huge stature to him. He's well known and probably one of the most down to earth fireside chats we've had uh, on our podcast since the beginning. Oh, I agree. I I feel like we were all of the same mind. It was such an easy conversation. I'm always in awe of people who are these larger than life characters. You know, here's a guy who gets up and talks in front of huge groups of people. Didn't know who we were, obviously, until we met him, but then made it seem like we had known each other for years. Like, just has this incredibly easy style about him. And by the way, is so knowledgeable. He could very easily have been dropping names left and right because if you look at his books and you read his, he's a regular columnist in Forbes and you read his articles in Forbes or he also writes for Inc., he interviews some of the most amazing people. And I know that your mouth dropped him when he talked about going to Guy Kawasaki's house from Apple and interviewing him. And I thought, that's it. Tim's done. Like, I, I, I needed some help at that moment. <laughs> Someone needed to prop me up. I'm sure I was hyperventilating at some point. <laughs> it's, it is just amazing. And it comes from, you know, he has such a deep background and it's wide, you know, it's not industry specific. He is just really phenomenal at what he does. Let's talk a little bit about some of the things that he brought to the table. What did you think about his self-professed, I'm a communications nerd or geek? You know, when I first heard him talk about that, and obviously it was before our podcast that I heard that, I was, I initially was taken aback by it because he doesn't come across that way, especially someone who's been an on-air news broadcaster. You wouldn't expect that. But after having a conversation with him, his passion for communication really rings true. And sometimes I feel like we're living in this little vacuum of a world, right? You know, only people who teach communication 
or you know spend a lot of time thinking about it or writing about it have that level of interest and you can see how he makes it really ubiquitous so even though he himself is a communications nerd and i i do love that term he really makes it uh, he, it's very broad based for him, and he gives so many different examples of how communication plays it out. So I love that. And I also love the part of our conversation that we had latched on to long before we met him, which is this idea that the workplace has changed and how much we rely upon our communication skills. I feel like it really resonated with the message that we always communicate which is that anytime you're speaking in public, you're public speaking. And I kind of feel like you shared that with him and he definitely latched on to that idea, which was kind of cool. <laughs> totally agree. You know, it, it it just brought the point of the conversation where we're talking about soft skills and are they really essential skills? I, I, that really resonates. And I know that in his uh, you know, his recent book that he wrote that is out and for everybody called Five Stars from Good to Great. Uh, it's a, an amazing read and it really does emphasize how in our conversation, this idea of communication being a soft skill, that's such an antiquated term. And I know I get angry these days when I hear that term soft skills. It's really not soft, and, and people should be punished for using that going forward. It's truly an essential skill. It addresses a human interaction element that is required for us to excel, for us to grow, for our economy to grow. And we'll talk a little bit about that, too, that you know the 21st century knowledge economy is really where it's at these days, and how you're able to communicate that is vital. It's absolutely critical for organizations to succeed. So it just, I appreciate he's on the same page and really supports essential and core versus soft skill. There's a hot button for me. Oh yeah, I know it is. And it's, it's really nice to, to talk with someone who completely understands our mission and our purpose and, and what we are trying to help other people understand and help organizations understand. So that was very, very cool. I would say really important for our listeners is to take pick up some of his books because they're great reads. They really are so interesting and learning about all these different speakers and people who you would never have expected to have been terrified and you know people like Warren Buffett who say that they feel like he feels like your net worth can increase by 50% if you can communicate effectively like the value that's attached to that and all the people that he's spoken to. So I think it, I think it's going to be really fun for people to listen to and I'm I'm super excited for it. I, I am too. I know we're we're going to let everyone listen to it shortly, but just to that point, I would never have expected Barbara Corcoran to be an individual who had any fear at all of public speaking and a big piece of what he highlights in his book and we talk about as well is just get out and do it. Even a small amount, just push yourself to try something and push that boundary of comfort out a little bit further so that you're building that, that uh, coping mechanism, if you will, or that understanding that you can address the anxiety and adrenaline that hit you at the beginning or right before a presentation. Just take the risk, stand out there and put yourself in situations that make you push a little bit harder and then look back on it and say, wow, you know, I did that and be proud of that and really help help move yourself forward. So I'm excited for everyone to hear what we heard. Uh, excited for the conversation. We really look forward to your feedback. Uh, please comment on us. Tell us what you think about it. Ask us your questions. I'm really excited to get everybody in line with listening to it. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, here's our interview with Carmine Gallo. The cream rises to the top. If you build it, they will come. Content is king, and so on. We've heard all the cliches, but the problem is they are totally wrong. Even the best idea, product or project will fall flat if it isn't communicated effectively. On the Figures of Speech podcasts, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Hey. 
So Carmine, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited to have you with us. In fact, we're really fanning out on uh, this. We're fangirling right we're now, Carmine. We're super out. excited. Oh, t- that's great. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks, Tim, Tammy. That's, that's terrific. I- I'm sort of fanning out myself. <laughs> All right. I like that. that. That in of itself, we're done. That's a privilege right there. I, you know, I think it would be helpful just to get everything started. It's, it's really beneficial that, you know, we share with everybody a little more of your background. You've called yourself a communications nerd, which we love. We relate to that so well. Um, was this always the case for you? I really want to start with the idea of where did your passion for communication come from? Yes, I'm a communication nerd. Absolutely. <laughs> I am obsessed with communication. And yeah, that that's the theme of my life and my career. You know, looking back, I was thinking to myself uh, not too long ago in, in college, I, I never saw myself doing this. I went to UCLA and I was studying political science and I was going to, to go to law school. That's what everybody was was doing. Uh, and I come from an you know, Italian immigrant family. So when they came to America, it's like, what are you going to be a doctor or a lawyer? You know, one of those type of things. Right. <laughs> uh, but pick, you know, pick one, pick one. <laughs> now looking back at it though, even in college, I would go to the library in the, at the UCLA library and pick out these old journals that are, and they still have it online. They're called vital speeches of the day. And they were the great speeches that happened that month. So every month there was a journal called Vital Speeches of the Day. And I was more obsessed about great speech making than I was about anything else. So I loved speeches and I didn't think I was a strong enough writer to be a speech writer. Uh, but I recall uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, I kind of grew up under Reagan. So here's a guy who's just a great communicator. And when the space shuttle exploded and he brought everyone together in that emotional. So now I know it's Peggy Noonan who was behind most of the writing, uh, but just beautiful, beautiful words. And I just sort of became obsessed with it. And after college, I went to journalism school at the Medill School of Journalism, Northwestern, and I went into journalism. So for 15 years, that was my career. I worked at CNN for a while doing business news. And here's how we come full circle to today and what I do in terms of writing, writing communication, uh, on communication, public speaking skills. And I'm sure you've noticed this too in, in your profession. When I was at CNN and I was reporting specifically on business news, I was a business news correspondent. I noticed when I first got to New York City, I live in California now, but I was working in New York City, that the same people would be guests every single week, the same characters. And I thought, this is a big city. We've got a lot of economists and financial experts and stockbrokers. Why is it the same Rolodex of people? Because they were the best communicators. They could take complexity and make it simple and understandable. They weren't necessarily the most prominent in in a particular category but they were the best at communicating those concepts. And to this day, like 20 years later, I'm still seeing the same faces on CNBC and the other business shows. So if you can communicate, it really stands apart. But the people I interviewed, uh, a lot of business professionals or CEOs or business leaders, I realized could not communicate very well at all. So the skills that got them to the C-suite or that particular that position were not necessarily the same skills that they need when they had to promote the company and talk about their ideas in a much more public way. How did the shift happen for you? So what was the moment where you said, okay, I've been doing this, you know, I've, I've had this epiphany that clearly we have a limited audience of people that we can get onto our shows because they're the ones who are more effective what was the moment where you said, I want to now step away from this job and be able to help these people communicate more effectively? I remember two moments in particular. I enjoy writing and I started writing columns for different publications. At that time, it was Business Week was a very popular publication. And I was writing columns specifically on communication skills. And I wanted to write a book. 
And by that time, I had already made a transition away from journalism full time, and I was working for a, a public relations firm, but doing much of the same thing, training people on how to be better communicators uh, or, or training CEOs, what, what's called media training. Uh, so training, yeah, you, you're both familiar with that, training CEOs to make media appearances. And I wanted to write, though, I wanted to expand way beyond media training. And the public relations firm said, that's great, but you can't be, you know, writing a book and then working for us and all that. So I said, well, then I'll write a book instead. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my advance was not very large. And I quit, <laughs> I quit a six-figure job as a vice president of a public relations firm with a mortgage and a baby on the way. So that was, oh, that was a little scary. Those were scary times. I had one project of $1,200 lined up, and that was it. So oh. it, it, was a, it was scary, but that book became an international bestseller, and it was called The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. So thank goodness it did well. <laughs> and it did so well in some countries, like Japan and, and a few other countries, that uh, we were able to stop renting and buy our own house. So things worked out really well. <laughs> that was that was a good payoff for that risk. I love hearing that. You know, as startup founders, we can relate to I've got two kids and you know at a, at a a, a relatively advanced age given the average age of startups at least in Silicon Valley uh, to just decide that you want to really follow your passion it's always a gamble, but we're happy to hear that it paid off for you. Yeah, it's, it's been wonderful just being able to to learn. And now nine books later, uh, you know, we're talking about five stars today. That's my latest, but that's the ninth book. And I have been able to learn and just to keep learning. Communication is a gray area. There's always something new to learn. And the minute you say you're the best communicator of all time, you know everything there is, that, that means you're probably not very good. Uh, because right. there's so much more to learn and you can, and all of us can get better. You know, we often say when we're working with people, our corporate clients and individuals alone, the, the idea of perfecting communication skills is, is really a missed target. There is no perfection. There's constant improvement. I think the day someone feels like I've got this, I'm not, I'm not even to a small degree nervous or have a little anxiety, that's good stuff. You want to have that. It's how you harness it and use it that will help influence the outcome of the, the presentation or the situation you're in. But certainly, I just don't believe you can perfect these. Yeah. There should always be room for improvement. Tim, I've been public speaking uh, for major conferences, you know, as a public speaker every, uh, every week, every month for at least a decade. And the other month, maybe in January, I saw a video of myself at a recent conference giving a keynote speech, and I picked out a million things that were wrong. <laughs> you know, just like, oh my gosh, this guy is, is pacing the stage way too much. He's walking too fast. He mumbles a little bit. I can't understand what he's saying in there. Why is he looking at that slide? It's only a picture. Why are you looking at the slide? Right. You know? <laughs> so there were, you got to, you always have to continuously improve. And I've learned, I, I knew this a little bit when I wrote Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. I, I knew it a little, but it's been confirmed by people who have worked with Steve Jobs. Uh, and I've only learned in the last year or two, Steve Jobs relentlessly rehearsed and practiced for his presentations. And not just a little. I was just told by someone who used to work with Steve Jobs, he drove us crazy, he said, because everything had to be just so. It, he, he didn't like a font. He didn't like a slide. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Do you think that was about it? I'm sorry. Do you think that was about internalizing it and bringing it in? Because the sometimes the idea is you can practice too much and you can get it to where it's very mechanical and it doesn't feel very authentic. And authenticity is such a big deal. We like to tell people, we don't want to change who you are. We want the best parts of you to come through. And these are things you can do to help make that happen. And uh, I totally believe in practice. You have to practice and internalize it. But is there a time when practice is too much? <laughs> okay, that's a good question. And uh, I guess in theory, Tim, in theory, yes. Because then people appear robotic. Uh, because 
every word is so internalized that it's, it comes across as too practiced. I get that, right. but I've rarely seen it because most people don't rehearse nearly enough. But yeah, it's just the opposite problem uh, where, where people look at, and I do this because I, I see this among executives that I, that I consult or I work with. They look at their slides. Well, first of all, the slides are terrible, but we can talk about that separately. But they look at the they look at their slides, you know, on the plane to the conference and they just kind of leaf through them and they, they don't practice out loud and they don't get up and do dress rehearsals. So Steve Jobs would do dress rehearsals weeks in advance. And here's something interesting. Not a lot of people know. And I just learned this uh, from one of the designers who worked with him on his presentations. So Steve Jobs would get up on a stage in, in their makeshift theater not the real thing sometimes, but in the makeshift theater. And he would get up on the stage and his voice would be bigger and his gestures would be bigger. And, and he was practicing as if he were giving that presentation. And then he would stop at the end of the slide, at the end of a demo, turn to the executives in the audience and say, and lower his voice and totally get out of character and then ask them, what could I do better? Uh, what, what didn't sound right? What words should we change? Then he would get back into character. So it, to Steve Jobs, it, a presentation was a performance, and he practiced it like a performance. Ask your, your listeners, ask themselves, how many times have I practiced out loud like a performance when I've got a mission-critical presentation? I don't think a lot of people do. No. No, I we we so. actually saw a study, and and I can't remember the details of it now, but we saw it probably about two or three years ago that on average people practice for high stakes presentation two hours for high stakes presentations, and most people practice less than ten minutes on any other presentation, which is absurd. It, it's well, absurd. yeah. See, I, I do want to see that study. I want to look that up because I'm. I'm sure it's right. I, I think it's right. It sounds absurd, but I think it's accurate. I, I, I think it is too, but that begs the question. I'm fascinated to hear what your thoughts are on this. Why do you think people don't put more emphasis on it? We know how important communication is. We understand from our own experience and from teaching and educating others these elements, and they buy into it in the workshops and in the training but why do you think people don't put that emphasis on it, even when they're given tons of examples and, and studies like this that highlight just how much better they can be? Okay. I, thanks for that question. I love it. It's, it has been gnawing at me for years. Why don't, people put, <laughs> why don't people put more time and effort into rehearsing and practicing their important presentations? And I didn't have an answer, but I think I've arrived at an answer recently, like in the last few months, thinking and learning more about how Steve Jobs did it. And somebody, again, one of the designers who's worked side by side with Steve Jobs said he made it look easy, but there was a lot behind the scenes that went into it, a lot of practice and rehearsal and skill building. Okay. That's, that's the answer, Tim. It, Great speakers and great presenters make it look easy. It doesn't look that they hard. Do. Right. There's a lot of you have to put in a lot of effort to make something look effortless, but to the average person, it doesn't look that hard. Right. Yeah, and neither does an Olympic sport. They seem to do it so easily. A professional athlete looks like, you know, a basketball player looks like jumping five feet in the air. Everybody should be able to do that, right? Because They've spent their entire lives doing this. Tammy, I play golf. That's exactly, they really do make it look easier than it is. Hard sport. Yep. Yeah. So everything from not only the delivery of the presentation, but how to create the presentation, how to tell a story, how to, how to craft right. the narrative behind your product or your service or your idea. Um, I, I hate to, I, I don't want to scare anybody off from this podcast, but this takes a little work takes a little creativity. You can't just open up a PowerPoint slide and start right filling in bullet points. Right. You, you know, the, I, I appreciate your answer and I, I agree with you. I think they give a perception that, oh my gosh, look how fluent they are speaking up there. They're just a natural or they put in some time because it looks so easy. I should be able to do that. And going back to your comment of, of 
looking at a video of yourself and you notice you were pacing too much, I laughed because I, you know, there's a couple things that I believe in. First, we're, we are our own worst critic. Nobody's going to beat me up more than I'm going to beat myself up. And that really, con- it, it's a good contrast to the idea that, oh my gosh, well, he makes it look so easy. Steve Jobs makes it look so easy. Ronald Reagan makes it look so easy. Tiger Woods on the golf course makes it look so easy. And these are all mechanical. Why isn't it that easy for me? And I think it is a self-perception we set up that, oh, if I put that 10 minutes in or 30 minutes in, I'm going to be significantly better. And we all know it takes a longer run of practice to be able to to elevate yourself to that level. I wrote a book on the TED Talks and how to, what you can learn from the, not how to give a TED Talk necessarily, but what you can learn from these great speakers. And it was called Talk Like TED. And I, I, there are actually a lot of people who read it who do give TED Talks, but that's not the intended audience. The intended audience was everybody else who just gives presentations and who may look watch TED Talks. Uh, one of the most famous TED Talks of all time in the top 10, which has been viewed millions and millions of times, is by a scientist named Jill Bolte-Taylor. Uh, and it's called My Stroke of Insight. It was one of the early TED Talks and one that became, went viral. Well, I spoke to her directly. She practiced 400 times. So a little more than two hours, Tim. Yeah, a little bit more than two hours. Oh, a little bit more. I, wa- I want to shift gears a bit, but but in, in the vein of, of what we're talking about and uh, Admittedly, you know this, but our listeners don't know this. I posted on LinkedIn yesterday my one of my favorite quotes of yours, and this is a quote that we've used and we've 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 very uh, graciously borrowed from you. Uh, but your your quote says that in the twenty first century knowledge economy, you are only as valuable as your ideas, and the ability to convince others that your ideas matter is the single greatest skill that will give you a competitive edge. With that in mind, and the fact that everything that we've just talked about, right, we, we know how important communication is. You've highlighted that we are at an unprecedented time in our society where it's more important than ever. What do we do? How do we get people to be successful you talk a lot about leaders, but this affects everybody. What do we do? How do we, how do we get people to think about the fact that the one thing that's going to make them successful is the ability to communicate their ideas? Tammy, that's, that's a good point. Thank you for that, for using that quote. Uh, can I tell you where that came from? I'll give you a little backstory. Uh, what I've learned over the past few years, especially as I was reach, researching that the Five Stars book, and, and this is where it all came from, and this will answer the, the question, I think, for our listeners. Uh, I have been, I have talked to historians and economists primarily about this, this subject. And one economist in particular, a couple of them actually, have been studying this idea of persuasion and where persuasion fits in the modern economy. Uh, and one economist called it sweet talk, sweet talking, you know, old fashioned face-to-face communication skills. And so I asked this particular economist from the University of Illinois in Chicago uh, about some of the studies that she had done. And here's how she phrased it. She said, communication is more important today than ever before. Why? How is that? It seems counterintuitive to me, right? Or I think to the average person, because it's a digital economy. It's all about big data and artificial intelligence and machine learning. Where does old fashioned communication face to face come into play? And here's the way it was explained to me. And I'm sure everyone sort of understands this intuitively. But throughout most of history, we've been an agricultural society. Almost until you know, a hundred years ago, we were uh, ag ag based. So we made our value came from our hands in the fields and working the fields and plowing the fields. And now, less than two percent of uh, American population works in on farms. Then came the industrial revolution. The value came in the factories and making widgets and on the factory lines. 
Well, all of that is gone, and now the only thing you have left, and the only thing you have left, really, if you want to stand out from the machines that are replacing so many of our tasks, is the your imagination and your ideas. If you cannot convince, and this came from economists too, if you, and historians, if you cannot convince people today of your idea, uh, then you're going to fall behind. So if you can't convince people to hire you, to buy your products, to join your team, uh, that is one of the foundational skills now that will set you apart from the rest of society, your your competitors, your peers. So if you don't have those skills of persuasion, that's a problem. And that's why I say that mastering this, I call it the ancient art, because we, we know how this is done. We, we already know. We know how this is done. Uh, it goes back to Aristotle. So I call it mastering the ancient art of persuasion to stand out in the world, in the age of AI, you know, in the, in the modern world. If you want to stand out, you've got to be better at speaking and presenting and communicating your ideas. It's interesting, and I, I don't know if you saw this, but last year LinkedIn did a study Uh, where they interviewed their members as well as talent professionals, and they identified communication as the number one skills gap. I I saw that. Yeah, I saw that. Go ahead. Well, what that means is that all these individuals were self-identifying. So they're acknowledging that they themselves didn't have the skills they felt they needed, the communication skills, they felt they needed. And this is where the conundrum, and this may be a, this may be a rhetorical question because I don't know that we actually can figure out the answer to it, but the conundrum I see is what you just said, what you talked about, about how industry has changed. And there are like 66 million knowledge workers in the workforce today. It's the, it's the majority, the vast majority of the workforce are knowledge workers. So we know that in a knowledge economy, communication is important. And then you have all these people who are in the workforce who are self-identifying as not effective communicators. So everybody is saying the same thing, but yet people are reluctant to do anything about it. People face this problem with dread or this idea, well, I'm never going to be able to do it well anyway. Okay, Tammy, that you, you, Tammy, you bring up an interesting point about this whole knowledge economy and the fact that people self-identify that this is a critical skill that, that they often lack. Um, I, have, I want to talk about that in a second. Uh, you just brought up something that triggered a, a story that kind of bring this full, brings it full circle for me. Uh, the, the whole idea of communication as a soft skill, for example, uh, which I don't, I don't think it's a soft skill anymore. I, I've called it that for years. Oh, it's a soft skill. Well, no, it, it's the equivalent of cold, hard cash because it is the one skill that will set you apart. Here's how I came to that conclusion. A couple of years ago, I was speaking to a, uh, a venture capitalist in a Silicon Valley-based accelerator uh, startup firm called Y Combinator. Y Combinator is is famous in certain circles because they were the first investors and seed funders for companies like Reddit and Airbnb. So Airbnb doesn't exist if it it hadn't been for Y Combinator. I spoke to one of the principal partners, and I made the mistake of calling storytelling and communication a soft skill. And he looked at me. I'll never forget it, uh, Tammy. He looked at me and said a soft skill. He said, if an entrepreneur comes into my office and cannot convince me to join this journey, because usually it's not that they don't have a product. They have to persuade me to join this, to join their narrative. If they can't do that, they don't get funded. And then he looked at me and he was dead serious. He said, you call it soft. I call it fundamental. Yeah, and I and I'm like I'm the guy who's been writing about this for, t- <laughs> and I minimized I minimized this topic. I write about it, but I minimized it. 
I, I, I don't think it's just you, and I appreciate you saying that, but the, the, you know, there's the entire workforce and the organization that created the dynamic of hard skills versus soft skills. And for the longest time, and in fact, recently, just a few months ago, I got into this Twitter debate with somebody. <laughs> oh, be careful. Very friendly, very, very friendly Twitter debate. It was a very healthy conversation, but it was really around the idea of why do we have hard and soft? There are core skills. And I think, I think you've mentioned it as essential skills. And I call them core skills. They, to me, they are the fundamental elements of how we connect as human beings. Not even how well we do it. That's one element. But as a species, our communication skill is, is relevant to that fight, flight, or freeze movement. It's it's how, how we you mate. persuade somebody. It's how we may. <laughs> yeah, it's how I mean, we it's date. everything that we do. It's right? all of those things. So I, I love that you said that. And that's exactly the message we're sharing, which is this is not something that is a nice to have. It's critical to have. And if you don't have it, you're going to have a you're going to suffer a loss of some sort. You're not going to be taking full advantage. And it brings me to a question to you because this has been bugging me for a long time. And I know you yourself, you do a lot of executive level coaching. And one of the things that I think we really want to make clear to people is how we can help them understand the ROI for having folks like us or having a resource that allows them to build this core or essential skill set. How do you go about articulating that to folks when you talk to them about it? And you're facing the same thing we are where they say, you know, this is soft skills training and we vehemently disagree. <laughs> okay. I, I, uh, two, I have two ways of answering the ROI on communication skills. Uh, not too long ago, I spoke with Guy Kawasaki. I had a nice conversation with him at his house in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, he's a former Mac evangelist and, uh, social media influencer. And he's written quite a bit on communication skills, and he's been a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. So he has seen a lot in Silicon Valley. And I asked Guy Kawasaki about this whole idea of uh, how important it is to be a better speaker and presenter. And his, his answer to me was, well, if you, if you don't build a skill, then you're just an idiot. <laughs> so th there's part of your ROI. You're just an idiot. It's <laughs> going into our pitch deck. <laughs> and, and, and that was it. That was, I, I expected something deep because you're just an idiot. I thought, okay, well, <laughs> but here's, here's the best answer I have. And you can put this into your pitch deck. I, this is the best answer I've ever uh, seen on ROI. Because, they, you know, they're right. I mean, it is one, it's a gray area communication and there's just uh, so much to learn and so much to talk about. But the ROI is from Warren Buffett. And I've written about it a couple of times for some of the platforms I write about or write, who I write for. Warren Buffett has said on more than one occasion that the best investment you can make is not a stock, it's in yourself. And the best investment in yourself is public speaking. Yeah. And he said, if you sure. can become a better public speaker, it raises your value in the workplace by 50%. And he has said that on a couple of occasions, and he keeps using 50% number. In my opinion, then, uh, the ROI is you are instantly 50% more valuable uh, in the workplace if you can improve the way you uh, you speak and you present. Uh, now that's that's the best ROI I have. But my gosh, the anecdotal stuff that I have been—not not just anecdotal—I mean things that I have been told directly from senior executives who have have improved their presentation skills and won major contracts, or improved their presentation skills, even and, improved their product, or improved their product and sold more product and, and were elevated in the workplace. I have a story in one of my books, not five stars. I think it was one of the earlier books and I called it the $875 million PowerPoint. So the true story, I don't just listen. I, I don't uh, just assume that everything is, is accurate until I really look into it. But somebody sent me an email a few years ago and they said, hey, just wanted to let you know that our company went from a small company to a big company <laughs> uh, almost overnight in about four months, uh, thanks to some of the, the 
techniques and presentation secrets of Steve Jobs. And that was it. It was just a simple little email. I said, no, 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 you can't, you can't get away with that. And so I had extensive conversations with this company and I looked into it just to kind of make sure that it was, they weren't exaggerating. Okay. I'm, I'm very careful. I don't want to exaggerate things. So Tim and Tammy, this is true story. Uh, A company is in the big construction equipment uh, space. So big cranes, you know, the ones that are taller than the uh, Statue of Liberty, you know, the giant cranes that are made for built uh, big construction projects around the world. Uh, They said that in their category, everybody has to meet the same regulations. Everyone has the same type of employees. Everybody has the same equipment. How do you stand out in that kind of category? They were a small player in this category. And they went on some road show, uh, not to pitch themselves for investors, but to, uh, you know, show, just to showcase their, their company uh, at conferences. They were not getting a lot of projects. They were getting two to $5 million projects from these conferences. They read my book and they completely rearrange their presentations. They did a Steve Jobs-like presentations. And, and this is in a, in a staid, um, sort of uh, dry kind of a category where, where the, you don't do those Apple-like presentations, right? It's, it's all very old school PowerPoint with a lot of graphs and bullets and charts. They went the Steve Jobs route and they started storytelling and telling stories and telling and using more graphical representations and using metaphors and analogies. Uh, And all of a sudden, they started picking up a little bit more business. And finally, a major company came to them and said, we want you for these two projects. The two projects totaled $875 million worth of construction, you know, like in Dubai and, you know, overseas. Uh, where they're building the tallest buildings in the world. You know, you need big cranes for those type of things. Uh, and But here's the kicker. Here's the kicker. They uh, Once they were comfortable with this client, they asked them, why did you come to us? I mean, there's other companies that are, you know, bigger than we are. Uh, and they said, your presentations that you gave at that conference, they they told us that you think differently. It was different. It caught their attention. It was intriguing, right? And, and so uh, here's the here's the other kicker. The person who created that presentation told me, he said, Carmine, you know, there's other companies in this space that could have said exactly what we do, exactly. You know, the, the same pricing structure, the same thing. They could have said it exactly as we did, but we we reframed the way we told it. We changed the way we told it into a much more compelling and dynamic presentation. So it's the same stuff, right? But it's the way they presented it that catches people's attention. Yes. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting, just as an aside, and you were talking about this before, one of our advisors is a professor at Babson College in, in Boston. And she did a study that was actually in uh, Amy Cuddy's last book, Presence. Mm-hmm. And it talked about, uh, she, she came out of the VC world and it talked about uh, why some, uh, some entrepreneurs were able to successfully raise money. And, you know, and this is a totally separate conversation. There's lots of theories about why people are successful raising money with investors and biases and all of that. But this was, she really looked at it across many different, uh, organizations, many different founders with different backgrounds and things like that. And what she did is she looked at 185 venture capital presentations and she looked at their videos of them pitching. She looked at their pitch, pitch decks. She looked at their background and she found three common themes that emerged on those that were successful. And what she saw is that they came across as confident they came across as comfortable and they had a passionate enthusiasm for their business. And what we know is that uh, agree that storytelling and the content that you're using is important, but that's all coming from them. No slide is going to demonstrate that to an investor or to an audience. That is their own ability to harness that power within themselves to be able to communicate that effectively. And I think that that really speaks to what you're talking about, that across the board, and 
when we think about where people are, where new ideas are coming from, where the billion dollar businesses are coming from, it's startups. And these are people, like you said before, there wouldn't be an Airbnb if they weren't able to get into Y Combinator where they had a pitch to do that, that they went to Demo Day at Y Combinator where they had a pitch to investors, and then they had a pitch again and again and again. And that's the future, right? That's where, that's where our economy is going, all these incredible startups, all these ideas. And we often wonder how many ideas are never getting to the surface because someone can't share it. I've wondered that too. I don't think we'll ever have an answer, but certainly it's, uh, <laughs> imagine millions of, all the millions of ideas that that die because uh, there is not a convincing person to, to sell that idea. Yeah. We could not agree more. In fact, I, I don't know what's going on here. There are so many lines that we, <laughs> we themes and the things that we say and, you know, I mentioned earlier on, why did we do this? Uh, you know, in terms of starting presenter and the idea of communication skills being the bigger element here, it's the fact that if people don't feel confident enough to share what their thoughts are in a, in a meaningful way that they are comfortable delivering it, they're confident in what they're saying, how many ideas are left on the cutting room floor? How many problems are we not solving that, you know there is somebody out there, more people than not, that have some great ideas and wisdom and just a thought that could spark somebody else. And we are missing those opportunities simply because of their fear and lack of confidence. And that's just a shame. So apropos of that, let's talk a little bit about fear. You had a great quote and I've heard this before in five stars about Barbara Corcoran, who's who's a Shark Tank investor and obviously a real estate mogul in New York City. And she admitted her- She's amazing. Her, she's amazing. We love her and she's hilarious. But she admitted her early fears of public speaking and kind of said the same thing. I really loved how you showcased her- approach to tackling her fear by taking it head on. So she goes out and teaches real estate classes. And you also shared a story about a pastor who also, you know, had sweaty palms and struggled with it. And you talked about this idea of rehearsing and reappraising. Tell us a little bit more about that and some of your theories on how we tackle fear. Yeah, well, th that pastor, by the way, uh, sells out stadiums. So he, uh, he <laughs> and he had a terrifying fear of public speaking. Uh, so I look at uh, that brings up an interesting point. I look at great communicators across the board, right? Uh, whether they're pastors, because think about that. I mean, every week you've got to fill the pews, right? So they learn how to be convincing, and then entrepreneurs and and business leaders. So I try to find a nice cross-section of people who I can learn from, and I just pick their brain. Barbara Corcoran is somebody who I interviewed many years ago for one of my books. And she had a, she's very open about it. As you know, she's a very open person, very transparent. And she talked about that paralyzing fear of public speaking. And so what she did is she got over it by volunteering to teach a real estate course. Well, that's not too different. In fact, it's exactly what Warren Buffett did. So Warren Buffett has acknowledged a fear of public speaking early in his career. How did he get over it? He volunteered to teach a stock, you know, an investment course on the stock market. Uh, and that, that actually is the way psychologists and, and cognitive development specialists would advise you to do. And that's to face the fear, okay, but do it in small doses. Uh, that, that's like behavioral therapy. It's the same thing as when you're trying to get over your fear of spiders. You know, they don't put a tarantula right. on your hand. They expose, <laughs> <laughs> right? They, they expose you to it. They expose you slowly. We're going to show you a picture. That's it. Just a picture. You know? <clears throat> so here's a, a true story that I just learned recently that fits into this whole idea of how to overcome anxiety because one, it's natural. Everyone has it. And it's good to be socially anxious because that's we've sort of evolved as a species to want to ingratiate ourselves with the tribe. Uh, and if, if you were not liked by the other people in the tribe, you were kicked out of the cave. And that's not a good thing. 
uh, <laughs> at least historically, you know, millions of years ago. So it's it, it's very natural to have that anxiety about wanting to be loved and liked and all that. Uh, so Tim Ferriss, the very famous, you know, podcaster and and blogger and author of Four Hour Work Week, recently in a conversation he was having with another author, buried in the middle of this conversation was a little story he told. Uh, when he when Four Hour Work Week first came out and he had to start giving presentations on it, like at South by Southwest and different conferences, he was terrified. He had a, a very deep seated fear of public speaking. You wouldn't know that today because he's a famous speaker, but he did. And so what it, he was in Austin at the South by Southwest conference uh, preparing for a presentation based on his new book. And he was so afraid of speaking in front of people that he was staying at a friend's house and he didn't even want to uh, rehearse out loud in the house because his friend might overhear. So that, that's how bad it was. I mean, he really did not like to stand up in front of people. And he went into the garage, true story. Okay, he, he went into the garage and the dogs followed him out like chihuahuas. They were, he said they were chihuahuas. <laughs> and there were three chihuahuas. And he said, okay, this is where I'm going to start. And he started rehearsing in front of the three chihuahuas. Isn't that it? See, th that's exactly what Barbara Corcoran was doing. That's exactly what they, the, the psychologist recommend is you, you have to start somewhere, but start slowly. It, don't start in front of 10,000 people. Don't start in front of you know, your boss or in front of you know, your peers the first time you give that presentation. You're nervous. That's acceptable. Now start small. Start in front of the dog. Start in front of two peers, you know, two people. You know, start slowly and gradually build up to where you've already rehearsed it 50 times in front of people and an audience. So a real, you know, a bigger audience isn't that big a deal. I, you know, I, I, we agree entirely on this and we will, you know, we'll often tell people when we are working with them and when they're inquiring, you know, about the app and how to improve and get better, you know, with live training, it's wonderful, it's done, but what happens when you leave me? How do I, how do I further all these things that you gave me? And we tell them, just pick one thing, pick one thing you want to be better at. And this entire time you've probably picked up on half a dozen things you'd like to work on and just think about it incrementally. Your goal is to improve over time. And again, not to perfect, but we really kind of instill in people as well. Anytime you speak in public, you're public speaking and you have more opportunities than you're probably aware of every day to practice one small element of it, slowly build that confidence so that in certain situations where you're taking a leap, let's say in front of your boss or in front of your colleagues or even your senior managers, now you're going to put it all together, but you've done the legwork, if you will, to try it out. And it's not so unfamiliar. You, you, can, re you can recall all of it and put it together and be a little bit better. Carmine, you, you just mentioned something that's really interesting when you talk about the practicing and Tim Ferriss practicing in front of Chihuahuas, which may be my favorite story that I will repeat. Uh, but I was giving a talk the other night and one of the questions the audience posed to me was, isn't the best way to practice in, in a real environment? And of course I said no, because that's the most high stakes situation possible. But there is this perception that people have that if you're not, it's easy enough to practice in a conference room or at home or stand in front of the mirror. And it's a very different thing when I actually have to do it in front of people. How do you, what do you say to that? You know, how do you combat that idea? Well, they have to, uh, it's very different doing it at home. There's no stress there. And so sports psychologists say you have to add a little stress. Okay, so a little stress though doesn't mean you do the real. You're doing it for the real time. A little stress means in front of the dog. A little stress may, depending on the level of your anxiety. But it, but a little stress means in front of a small group of trusted friends uh, that that you can get some feedback from. A little stress, not so much that you're having a panic attack. 
Right. 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 So it's like, it's like in front of the Chihuahua first, then the German <laughs> chef, then a good friend. And, and your then- mom. My daughter uh, is in competitive gymnastics. And when I used to go to practice, I used to think, why is everyone, uh, when they're on the beam and they're doing all these type of uh, routines, Every all the kids are like yelling at the you know yelling at them. Hey, you got it, girl. You know that kind. You you go. You got this. And everyone's like loud. <laughs> why? Why are they doing that? Why? Why shouldn't they just kind of you know keep it down? And I quickly realized that when you go to a tournament or when you go to a gymnastics meet, there's a lot of gymnastics events happening at the same time. There's a lot of loud music. There's a lot of cheering. You get you do that in practice purposely to get you used to that environment. But it's, it's the same thing, standing in front of a mirror or just standing up by yourself or just flipping through a PowerPoint, that's not the way you would be doing it in, in the real environment. So, and so we get into this unfamiliar, I, I like that word, unfamiliar, you get into this unfamiliar environment uh, for real, and then you, you panic. I understand that because you haven't, you haven't been there. It's, it's unfamiliar. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that we often talk about when we give talks or we're coaching is that the only thing more terrifying than giving a presentation is practicing the presentation in front of other people, mm-hmm. especially people you know. There's some, there's some comfort that comes with anonymity if you're talking to a large group, and we know that people have different preferences. But it's interesting because I remember when I started that was the biggest discomfort I had was doing the practice. I'd rather actually give the presentation than do the practice because I felt like I was being assessed or judged more heavily during the practice. And I was so terrified of the feedback mm. I was going to get. And, and that could so, be, yeah. So you have to be uh, aware of you know the, the type of stress <laughs> that you put yourself under. But, but the, I like this idea of mild stress. That's what sports psychologists do. Uh, whether it's uh, football or you, you know how they practice uh, the the field goal kickers, the place kickers. I mean, that's that's high stress because it's just you and seventy thousand fans wanting you to miss. Uh, and they and they practice under conditions where they pipe in all that noise and stuff. So it's it's mild, but they call it mild stress, not the real thing. But you have to give yourself a little stress, otherwise, if there's no tension at all then it's easy for you and there's no one watching. And then you actually give your presentation and there's a little tension and that builds into a full-blown panic attack. So it's very interesting if you look at it from that you know, psychology perspective. I, I think that's so smart. And that's, that's another a very, very good practical tip to think about when you're practicing because doing a, doing a practice session for a presentation in a very Zen environment, I've yet to see a Zen presentation environment. They yeah. just don't come out that way. So I, I love your words of wisdom. This has really been amazing. I know we have to bring it to a close, sadly, at least sadly, for this round. Sadly, I want more. <laughs> but there will be more. Hopefully, we'd love to do this again with you. Before we let you go, tell us what you're reading. What is capturing your attention and where is your focus right now? I'm a little ADD. Actually, I'm diagnosed ADD. So that's, you know, I, I'm very distractible. I have three or four books, you know, always going at the same time. Uh, there's one, but in particular, though, that I keep coming back to because I'm, I keep taking notes and it's fabulous. I love history. I'm a history buff. There is a book by Doris Kearns Goodwin that was a bestseller for many, many weeks uh, late last year. So if you haven't read it yet, you should. It's called Leadership in Turbulent Times. Leadership. And there's a picture of Lincoln on the cover. It was New York Times bestseller for many months. It talks about four presidents, uh, Lincoln, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. And she was asked, so this Pulitzer Prize winning historian was asked, what is the one thing that surprised you the most? Or what what is the one thing that you've learned about studying all these presidents? And she said, it's amazing that most of them were great storytellers. Interesting. Mm, ah. (laughs) So you can make the direct connection from Abraham Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation and that those things would not have happened at that time. If it had not been for Lincoln building his skills as a storyteller and a speaker, 
and he and he actively built those skills over time. Yeah, so he was not a, he was not a natural. It's all in the it's all in this history book, which is fascinating because you you learn that some of the great most influential leaders in history are people who were not naturally gifted communicators, but who had to learn the skill to be influential. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And Doris is amazing. Uh, I, I, I saw her talk about her book on, I think on MSNBC and she, it's fascinating. And I, I always love the angle that she takes, but that's great. We love to hear that. Well, Carmine Gallo, we are so grateful to have had you on our podcast. You have been extraordinarily fascinating. We're grateful for all the, the insights that you've shared. Great stories. Talk about walking the talk because you are the <laughs> ultimate storyteller. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time today. And I'm sure that our listeners are going to be completely enchanted by everything that you've said. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to meet some fellow communication geeks and we can nerd out together. <laughs> I'm going to borrow that from you. We, you. we are aligned. <laughs> thank you, Carmine. Thank, thank, you thank you so much. Very kind of you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. That was another great episode of Figures of Speech. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget, you can subscribe to our podcast wherever you sign up for your podcast. You can also visit our website at www.presenter.me forward slash podcast. Please leave us messages, review us. We want to know how we're doing. Ask us your questions. Who do you want to hear? How do you feel about all these topics? We love feedback, so please give us any and all. We welcome it, even maybe if you don't like us. We'll take that too, but just give us your feedback. Subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, and stay tuned for more great episodes. See you soon. <laughs>